Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I didn't do it to tarnish the badge or make cops look bad. It was just the constant talk of money and money, money, and then seeing it, it was was just a greed factor. I was greedy. This is Death, Sex, and Money. They don't get it. I'm dead. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. How often do you guys have sex? And need to talk about more. The money is not the prime asset in life. I'm Anna Sayle. In 1982, Ken Urell was 20 years old and a rookie cop in New York City. Almost immediately, because there was so on demand, I was put in a patrol car. It was a midnight tour. I was put in with a senior man. He had probably had 10 years on a job. And uh, we drove down to a bodega. He came out with a six-pack of beer, drove up to Highland Park, put his foot out the window, leaned back, had his beer, and told me, okay, kid, listen to the radio. I'm going to take a nap. Was there anybody who you sort of looked at and said, like, are we supposed to be doing this? We didn't really say, are we supposed to be doing this? We just thought that's how things were done. That's what the veteran officers were showing us. I was, (laughs) I guess this is what it's like to be a real cop. Drinking on the job was just the start of it for Ken Urell. He was learning how to be a cop in the 75th Precinct in East New York, a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn in the 1980s. A new documentary called The 7-5 is about that time of escalating crime and drug violence. Crack is now sweeping New York. Justice Department officials now say there is a direct link between crime and cocaine. Evidence of heavy money and heavy, violent drug traffic is all around. The documentary shows how Ken became a corrupt cop in the midst of this. It all started in 1987 when he became partners with Michael Dowd. Well, being good is a cop that would never give up another cop. Michael Dowd had a clear definition of what made a good cop as he told a city hearing after he and Ken were busted. A cop that if uh, he witnesses something go down, he's he's 100% behind anything a cop does, no matter what it is. Ken initially didn't want to share a squad car with Michael Dowd. He'd been warned. Don't work with that. He's going to get you in trouble. Don't do it. Give up the squad car if you have to. Go go walk a foot pose. Don't work with Dowd. He's going to end up getting you in trouble. And I felt... I had never done anything corrupt before. I'm not going to do it. But once once he was in the car with me, he talked night and day, 99% about money. The other one presenting was talking about women. All he discussed was money, 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 and it just drills into your head. How much money were you making as a police officer in 1987? I, I, it wasn't much. I remember paychecks, maybe six, $700, and it was a biweekly paycheck. Uh-huh. When was the first time that you took some money that wasn't yours? The first time was he had been attempting to what he calls show me he was a good cop, but what I call turn me to be to be like him, which was a corrupt cop. So it was a call for a burglary and there was a young teenage girl out front and 
her front door was broken in, and she was afraid to go inside, rightfully so. So she called 911. We showed up. We went inside. We checked the house, make sure there was nobody, uh, nobody inside, no perpetrators inside. And there wasn't. We came back outside and said, okay, it's safe. There's nobody inside. You know, call your mother. Get on the phone. Call your mother. And while she's on the phone with her mother, Mike says, ask your mother if there were any valuables. That way we could tell if it was missing so they could take a report. So she, the mother tells her, yeah, I, we had money and valuables up in the, in the master bedroom closet. So we go upstairs and Mike opens the closet door, sticks his hand around up top and goes, nope, there's nothing here. They must have got it. And I'm not thinking nothing of it at all because it wasn't the way I thought. And we drive maybe three, four blocks away. And he reaches into his pocket. He pulls out a $100 bill. He goes, here, this is for you. And I'm like, well, what the hell is that? What's that for? He goes, you didn't even tell you it was like proud. You didn't even see me take it, did you? So I take it and my thought process was I could either – not take it and be just as guilty because now I'm aware he took it. I could turn him in for $100, ruin his career, and cut my own throat in the department because no one's ever going to work with me or trust me again. Or take it and go along with him. So I took the money and it sat up on top of my locker for a long time thinking like if I didn't spend it, I could go back to being a regular cop. But that didn't work out. Did you spend it? Eventually it's spent. Yeah, eventually it's spent. You remember what you bought? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I bought bad karma with it. <laughs> By the time Ken was partners with Dowd, he was married to his wife, Dory, and living on Long Island in Suffolk County. But he grew up in Queens. My parents, for the longest time, were pushing to take a civil servant's job. His dad worked construction and wanted his son to have more reliable work and steady pay. There's a pension in 20 years. You get paid unlimited sick days. Did you think that you deserved a little extra cash for what you were doing? Did I think I deserved it? Absolutely not. It was pure pure greed. Once I got into it, it was pure greed. It, you know, it's like almost like sharks in a, in a feeding frenzy. You walk into a room with 10 kilos of cocaine and, you know, 300000 in cash. You either turn it all in and the, the department gets to use it. The, it goes to the city coffers or, you know, you're taking it for yourself. And Mike just rewired my brain. He taught me a completely different way to think about the job, to approach the it's job. It's interesting because the way you tell the story, it's it's that you knew the entire time that Mike, your partner, was setting a trap for you and you knew you were walking right into it. Uh, I had – basically I had no choice. I mean – I guess I did have a choice. I could have gave up the car like my, my buddy suggested and let him, you know, do his thing with somebody else. He would have corrupted someone else. But uh, I didn't think I would be able to be turned, I guess. And, you know, from there and from there, you graduate to worse than, you know, worse than worse crimes. And that happened quickly. Within about two months of accepting that first $100 from his partner, Ken started taking big weekly payouts from a local drug dealer in exchange for any information about police drug investigations. Here I am making a couple of hundred a week, and I got this guy offering us $8,000 a week. And where would you put that cash? <laughs> into, into everything. It went into everything. It went to, to new cars, jewelry, Furniture, appliances, you know. How would you carry it around? 
to transport it home? Yeah. It, it, thrown in a bag in the back seat of the car and we drove home. Because you didn't deposit it into a bank. No. It wasn't, uh, what, what, the way I handled it was I took my NYPD paycheck. I put that in a bank. That paid all my, my bills. It paid my mortgage, paid my utilities and anything outside of what's being documented by statements like just food or furniture or, or anything like that, I would pay with the cash. Do you think your wife knew that there was more cash coming into the household than before? Oh, yeah. She knew. She she definitely knew there was cash coming in. Um, she really didn't know the extent, I guess I could say, but she knew there was money. There was that, that first payoff that we got and we picked her up after we did a day tour and I tell my wife to reach into the bag to get us a few beers that were in the bag. We're going to have a beer while we're driving on the way home. She reached into the bag and it was filled with cash. And she let out a scream like, oh, my God, what's all this money doing here? So she was, she was aware of it, yes. Were you kind of showing off for her? I don't know if I was showing off. I was letting her know what's going on. There's going to be cash coming into the house. And she begged me, stop doing what you're doing, stop doing what you're doing, stop doing what you're doing. She did? Yeah, oh, over and over. So she wasn't just not asking questions. She She knew that you were... In, in danger of being arrested. Yeah, she knew the threat was there, especially later on when we started dealing the cocaine on our own. There was you know, no way for her not to know. Coming up, how Ken went from taking payoffs from drug dealers to selling cocaine himself. What happened is another whole story. Ken's story is part of the documentary The 7-5. It's in select theaters across the country this summer and streaming on Amazon, iTunes, and Google Play. But since it's getting to be that time when we all need a few hours sitting in an air-conditioned room, I want to get more recommendations of documentaries to watch this summer. So we're starting a Google spreadsheet that we can all add to. You can find the link at deathsexmoney.org, on our Facebook page, or on Twitter at deathsexmoney. We've already filled in some of the slots for you. Emily Botine recommends Time Indefinite, a film by Ross McElwee. It's about love, death, adulthood, and parents. Katie Bishop's pick is Muscle Shoals, about the legendary recording studio. I Love Stranger with a Camera, which explores the line between storytelling and exploitation. It comes from Apple Shop, the great documentary house based in eastern Kentucky. And the favorite documentary for Benjamin Franklin, one of our new interns, Madonna, Truth or Dare. So we're looking for your picks for new documentaries and classics, and tell us why. Again, find the link to this Google spreadsheet wherever you find us on the Internet. And together, we'll each avoid that half hour of browsing Netflix or Amazon. We've all got better things to do with our time. On the next episode, your stories about your siblings and how your relationships have changed as you've gotten older. Definitely there have been times when it's like, we're strangers. You know, is it okay to have some distance from your siblings as you grow? I would love to have a relationship with my sister. I really would. It's a little bit of sorrow. It's like you lost them. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how 
how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. So Ken Urell first started stealing money and taking payoffs in 1987 with his partner Michael Dowd. But then Dowd was transferred to another precinct. We didn't see each other for almost a year. He was gone. I went back on 
being a regular cop. Then in 1989, Ken was trying to make a routine arrest. He says there was a tussle. This kid's high on angel dust. He's a white kid from the suburbs, and he was coming back to buy yet more drugs. And he lunges for my gun. Ken says he fell back hard on his wrist. It was the last in a series of on-the-job injuries to Ken's hand. He was 28 years old. He retired from the police department. And he became a drug dealer himself. It started when two of Ken's buddies, who were also cops, asked him for a hookup to sell cocaine. He did have a hookup. His former partner, Michael Dowd. On the way home to Long Island, he would drop it off at my house. The next day, I would give it to these other two cops who would go and sell, and the profit would come back to me. How much money would you make? At first, it, it, it wasn't a lot. And then I learned ways to, um, I don't want to say cheat the two guys that originally came to me. I, but I learned ways to make money off of them. The <laughs> Wait, drugs, what's that the, <laughs> mean? You weren't cheating them. You were just making more money off of them. Yeah, because the drugs that are coming from Dowd, they're coming straight off a of kilo. So I'm realizing I'm getting all this pure cocaine. Why am I just giving these guys pure cocaine to sell on Long Island? So I w- went out to the nutrition store and I bought inositol, which is basically what's in energy drinks now. And I would cut the cocaine with inositol. I would take 14 grams of pure cocaine, keep that for myself, and I would take 14 grams that I'm giving to these other guys and cut it with 14 grams of inositol. And I would get two ounces out of the one ounce that were paid for. That's how I got into selling cocaine on my own. Uh, that sounds like you were cheating them. <laughs> I was making a side deal without including them. Yeah. Um, did you use? I did not use. I tried it once and I did not like the effects and that was that. What was motivating you at that point? I didn't need the money. I was I was well off. I mean my wife had gone back to work because I retired. So I was watching the kids playing Mr. Mom. I had a pension. I had a rental income. It was, I don't know, opportunity and motive, I guess. And w- once I was selling the cocaine, you know, you walk, in, you walk into a bar, you're a cocaine dealer. Everybody, you know, wants to be your best friend. Everybody wants to know you. So, yeah, you feel like a big shot. So you had, you had two kids who were Correct. little? Son, the, son and a daughter. A son and a daughter. And you were the primary stay-at-home parent? Yes. While you were dealing cocaine? Yes. <laughs> My wife would work during the day and I would make drug transactions at night. She'd be yelling at me, why are you going out again? Why are you going out again? I'll be back in, I'll be back in a half hour. What would you, how did you make yourself feel okay about this arrangement? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. There, I, there was no justification for it. it was, this is what I'm doing and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. The money just keeps flowing in. Where were you when you were arrested? I was actually in one of my dealers' house. He had owed me money and it was a, a long day. I went out. It was probably 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. Had an argument with my wife. She said, don't go out again. Don't go out. I'll be out for 10 minutes. This guy owes me money. Went to the house and – I'm in there maybe two minutes. Suffolk County hits the front door. They slam the door. And I'm now reverting to thinking like a cop. I'm thinking, well, we're getting robbed. So <laughs> I, I look down the hallway and I see police shields and their riot helmets and all that. I'm like, fuck. And I just went back in the bedroom. I put my hands on a wall before they were even there. And they came in, you know, 
start patting us down. They pull my gun out. They're all excited. Oh, we got a gun. We got a gun. And uh, that's it. We were arrested. Game was over. Michael Dowd was also busted, separately. He was arrested in his police uniform and had cocaine in his pocket. Both he and Ken got out on bail. Federal government's calling me in. But the investigation expanded. People were already cooperating. Ken didn't know if he could trust Michael Dowd. Maybe he's going to flip on me. But Dowd told Ken he wanted to jump bail and leave the country with his family. Uh, He kept pushing and calling me. Here was the plan, and get ready. It sounds crazy. They needed money to flee, so Mike and Ken were going to kidnap the widow of a drug lord for rival dealers. Then the rival dealers were going to kill her for unpaid debts. So I go to my lawyer, and I tell him about this kidnapping and execution plan. And he looks at me like, are you a fucking idiot? (laughs) You can't ignore this the way you try to ignore when he was first turning you and just go along with it. If they kidnap and execute somebody without you, you're going to go down because you know about it. Ken went back to the federal government and told them everything, going back to when he and Michael Dowd were partners. It almost becomes like a chess game. Who makes the first move? Ken's move was to tell Dowd he would help with the kidnapping. He wore a wire the whole time. Hours before it was supposed to go down, federal agents rescued the woman. Then they arrested Michael Dowd. Yes, I flipped on him. I didn't set him up. Did you go into any kind of witness protection? It was offered to me. We discussed it, and I didn't want to have my children go through changing their names and you know, not being able to see their grandparents again and, and their uncles and their aunts. So they just let us move out of state. That was to Florida. Did you feel safe? Uh, I looked over my shoulder for a long time. Eventually, your guard lets down. Did you serve any time? When we were first arrested, it took me two months to make bail. So I guess I was in a Suffolk County lockup for two months. After that, I did not do no prison time. When I went in front of the judge, the judge said the reason why she was giving me no time is to hopefully encourage other officers to come forward in the future if they see crime. Michael Dowd, Ken's former partner, pled guilty to drug trafficking and racketeering. He served 11 and a half years in prison. Ken didn't see him again until the making of the documentary, The 7-5. And I'm walking up the side block to The 7-5 precinct, come around the corner to the front doors, and there's Mike standing at the front door. And we sort of, from my perspective, I didn't know if we were going to hit each other or hug each other. But when I got close enough and I saw his eyes and sort of a smirk on his face, we just grabbed each other, gave each other a big hug, and uh, that was it. Why do you think you hugged each other? We were best friends. God, we were, we were like brothers. You know, and I guess time heals all wounds. I could see he's still a little bitter somewhat. But for the most part, we're, we're all good. When you think about your time as a police officer with Dowd, when you think about your time as a cocaine dealer, what are you most ashamed of? Absolutely everything I did with 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 Dowd while I was a cop. You know, cops have a hard enough time with the public eye and the, how they're perceived. I could I could have not done any of it. I, I was I was I was greedy. I, I, you know, when that money comes into the car, I could have said, "All right, 
I'm going to turn him in. I didn't do that. I didn't do the right thing. So there's, there's no justification for it. It's that's I'm just really stating the facts of how it is and what went down. Hopefully, for me, I would you know love some young cop to come across it and say, "Holy shit, I really don't want to go down that path." And you know they see how it screwed up our lives, and they won't they won't make that decision. Do you feel ashamed about dealing coke after you were a police officer? At that time, no. The the dealing every everyone, mailmen, all types of people were doing drugs. Everyone did cocaine back in the eighties. Are you, are you still receiving money from your time as a police officer? Are you still receiving your pension? A pension is for life. So, despite having told the federal government that you were stealing money. Protecting drug dealers as a police officer, you still receive a pension. During my time on the job, yes, they, there was a big discussion about that when we were first arrested. So, does that does it feel at all sh- shameful to cash those checks, knowing what you did on the job? Uh, what I did, I feel more shame shame over. You know, all, all the, I was legitimately injured, so. No, it doesn't feel shameful to cash the checks for which I'm receiving. How, how much is your pension check? Uh, I'd rather not get into that. Okay. And how – you're working now, right? I was working up until uh, this past summer in the automotive field. We're doing what kind of work? Auto parts, selling auto parts. What's it? What was it like to go from making a lot of money selling cocaine, and then not having that extra cash as a family? I lived an average life again. You know, moved to Florida, where thankfully the uh, the cost of living is a, is a lot less than New York. You know, and uh, you just go back to leading a very average life. More than 25 years after he left the police department, Ken still thinks of himself as a cop. You always think of yourself as a cop. Always. Tell me how it's you... A conf- it's, a con- it's a conflict. Because everything that happens in the news now, that's going on now with, with Ferguson and, uh, you know, all these recent uh, cops that were shot and killed in New York... You want to mourn for them, but you feel like you can't because you betrayed the badge. It's, it's very, very conflicted feeling, very conflicted thoughts. So you mentioned Ferguson and Baltimore, of course, and, and Eric Garner on Staten Island and New York here. And there's been an outcry about police community relations. Do you feel protective of police officers when people criticize? Absolutely. I'm almost 100 percent on the side of the cops every time. I'm interested in that because you, your own life story shows that there are cops who do not follow the rules and think they're above the law. Right. The, the situations that have been in the paper, I don't see – no cop goes out – 
at the beginning of the tour saying, I'm going to go out and hurt somebody. Not even, you know, the most corrupt cop who was out there grabbing money and working with drug dealers. I never, we never said, I'm going to go out there and hurt somebody. I never, we never intended to go out and physically harm somebody. We didn't. Nobody sees that. You go out and you see crime. You don't see black. You don't see uh, Hispanic. You don't see oriental. You go out and you see crime and you react to the crime at hand. Do you think that being a white cop in a primarily Hispanic and black precinct made you more bold in breaking the rules? No, I don't think that had anything to do with it. I would have, we would have broke the rules in, in, in a white neighborhood just as much. I mean, if a bag of money is being offered to me back at that time, I, I'm taking it. It was just pure greed. Once, once it was drilled into my head and, and my brain was rewired to do my job in a in a search for pad in my paycheck, I guess you could say. That that's all I saw. I saw green. I saw money. It was a definitely a character flaw. Ken Urell. He lives in Florida with his wife Dory. His kids are now grown. And we followed up on that pension question. According to a Newsday article from 1993, Ken receives more than $35,000 a year. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botine, James Ramsey, Rachel Aronoff, Benjamin Franklin, and Joe Plourd. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter, at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. Go there or go to our Facebook page to get the link to the Google spreadsheet to add your recommendation for documentaries we should watch this summer. And if you like Death, Sex, and Money, subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review there. That helps other people find the show on the iTunes charts. So Ken Urell doesn't have many regrets about selling cocaine in the 80s. But stealing money? He says he'd never do that again. Would I ever be tempted again? <laughs> no, no, no. I could be driving behind a Brinks truck and five bags of money fall off. I'm turning that in. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is 
is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.